Well, this talks about perfection. Verse 28. Okay, let's read 28 first, Al. For the law of quantified to each number of weeks, but, but the oath which came after the law came at the time that they made perfect forever. Okay. Men having infirmity ministered under the old covenant. That's something we're going to come back to, like Paul's point, as a substantiation of the general point. And then David, you have to on to it. Verse 11? Yes. Read it. Now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, on the basis of the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. Okay, the statement of it in that hypothetical form presupposes what? Not just if, but as a matter of fact, since there wasn't perfection available to the Levitical priesthood, correct? That's the question of the author. So we have in both verses 11 and 19 the declaration that the law could not bring in perfection. But there's another verse that even more, well, I wouldn't say more firmly, but equally indicates the inferiority of the Old Covenant order. Uh, that's not the one I have, but what do you, what do you see? Um, just that the law was the flesh of commandment, but according to the power of it's less than what is brought in today, the power of an angel's life. But where is there an explicit declaration that the law is sufficient? Okay. That's good. The law had to be changed. There's something wrong with the law since it had to be changed. But Thank you. Verse 18. What does it say explicitly? Well, that's pretty strong language. The law is weak and useless. So, let's, having outlined, in a sense, the general theme of the chapter, let's put all this together. We have a better hope in the better covenant that is run in now, enacted upon better promises, over against a covenantal arrangement called the law, or the Levitical priesthood, which made nothing perfect, was weak and useless. And I want our feelings and our thinking to be adjusted to that. There is a tremendous superiority to the covenantal arrangement that we have now. We should not have any anchoring to go back to the Old Testament order. Now what is it that made nothing perfect? According to verses 19 and 11, what made nothing perfect? That's not all though. Verse 11 doesn't say the law, although it mentions the law. The Levitical priesthood. Now, if you're going to be good students of the Bible, you need to learn to put these things together. You notice it's a parallel expression. The Levitical priesthood made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. So when your author speaks of the law being weak and useless, what is he thinking about? How is he using the expression, the law? He's thinking of the sacrificial system, he's thinking of the priesthood. That's the most obvious thing. The Levitical priesthood is a substitute for the law and that other expression. So it's the law understood as a covenantal administration that includes priesthood, sacrifice, and ritual. 
Now, why do you think Dr. Bonson would be one who wants to stress that? That the law that is being put down, as it were, the law that is being shown to be inferior, is the law pertaining to redemptive administration, priesthood, sacrifice, rituals of the Old Covenant. How else could the law be used? What, what might the expression the law refer to if not those things? Paula? The moral law of God. It's possible that we might read that the law made nothing perfect, meaning the commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, made nothing perfect. Now, I want to avoid having us draw that conclusion because there never was any question in anybody's mind that the moral law made nothing perfect. God never set forth the moral law to make anything perfect. The moral law was not given as a way of redemption, a way of recovery from man's fall and his alienation from God. And yet many people look upon the old covenant and they say, well, see, that covenant wasn't a good one. It was inferior, and the new covenant is superior. So what that means is we don't live by the moral laws of the old covenant anymore. They obviously made nothing perfect. And then invariably, the very same people who say that will give their own moral standards, which are much less than the Old Testament in the first place. And if they're concerned that those laws made nothing perfect, which is not at all what the author cares about anyway here, but if, they, if they're concerned about that, why is it that their man-made laws are going to do any better? And it's really a, a foolish, preposterous theological corner to paint yourself into when you interpret the Bible that way. But I want to point out, it's not just like theonomic prejudices that lead me to that conclusion. If you read this in context, the law does not mean the commandments of God telling us how to live our lives. The law refers to an order of priesthood, ritual, and redemption. And this order is called weak and useless. What other words do you have for useless? That's an awkward one in Greek. It can be translated different ways. Unprofitable, okay. Any other? I'm looking at verse 18 in case you're lost. The law is weak, unprofitable, useless. Okay, now, I've already made the distinction between the moral law of God and the law of God that tells us the way of redemption, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and so forth. But you know, even having drawn that distinction, that does seem like a rather strong remark. For God ordained the priesthood, God ordained the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And now the author says it was useless. I appreciate that. I think that's, that's a very intelligent um, possibility, a hypothesis to consider. Because sometimes... Um, what we have in the New Testament is a comparison of old and new covenants as to their relative glory. You see that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, where Paul tells us that the Old Testament has a glory, but in the face of Jesus Christ, it's just you know, outshone to the degree where you hardly even see the glory of the Old Testament now. So that, that is a very good hypothesis. I don't think it's the correct one here, though. I think the author means quite useless. The law was useless. Mm -hmm. I, how about this is a theory that the law isolated from the glory to come was useful and, uh, and, and uh, the priesthood 
inferior and the new covenant is superior. So what that means is we don't live by the moral laws of the old covenant anymore. They obviously made nothing perfect. And then invariably, the very same people who say that will give their own moral standards which are much less than the Old Testament in the first place. And if they're concerned that those laws made nothing perfect, which is not at all what the author cares about anyway here, but if, they, if they're concerned about that, why is it that their man-made laws are going to do any better? And it's really a, a foolish, preposterous theological corner to take yourself into when you interpret the Bible that way. But I want to point out, it's not just my theonomic prejudices that lead me to that conclusion. If you read this in context, the law does not mean the commandments of God telling us how to live our lives. The law refers to an order of priesthood, ritual, and redemption. And this order is called weak and useless. What other words do you have for useless? That's an awkward one in Greek. It can be translated different ways. Unprofitable, okay. Any other? I'm looking at verse 18 in case you're lost. The law is weak, unprofitable, useless. Okay, now, I've already made the distinction between the moral law of God and the law of God that tells us the way of redemption, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and so forth. But you know, even having drawn that distinction, that does seem like a rather strong remark. For God ordained the priesthood, God ordained the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and now the author says it was useless. I appreciate that. I think that's, that's a very intelligent um, possibility, a hypothesis to consider. Because sometimes um, what we have in the New Testament is a comparison of old and new covenants as to their relative glory. You see that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, where Paul tells us that the Old Testament has a glory, but in the face of Jesus Christ, it's just you know, outshone to the degree where you hardly even see the glory of the Old Testament now. So that, that is a very good hypothesis. I don't think it's the correct one here, though. I think the author means quite different. The law was useless. Mm -hmm. I, how about this is a theory? That the law isolated from the glory to come was useless. You know, and and the, the priesthood um, was not a an ongoing, eternal uh, promise until that too is a good hypothesis. I appreciate that one. I, I guess you can see that I'm not going to accept it. The Bible would say that, right? That if you try to see this as just some kind of axiomatic system of salvation that runs on its own, it's perfectly all right as it is, it's really useless. Useless apart from the glory to come of the Messiah that is spoken of in the law and so forth. But now I want to go back to the second word said. The law, the redemptive system of the Old Testament was useless. The purpose of the law is to obtain perfection and to make perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Do the author say that? The law makes nothing perfect. Now, the redemptive system is laid down by God to do what? To accomplish redemption. To accomplish restoration. And what the author is saying is the law never did that. Couldn't do that. You know, we say people who kept those laws were not saved then? No. 
what we're saying is, if they were saved, it was, they were saved for something that goes beyond what they did in the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system itself could not save. Give you an expression from a later chapter that I think you're all familiar with. Hebrew says the blood of bulls and coats is not adequate to atone. In the Old Covenant, life was not ex- exchanged for life. Human life was not ex- exchanged for the sinner's guilt before God. What was given in the place of the life of the human sinner? A goat, a bull, a dove, whatever, well, doves weren't um, atoning offerings, but nevertheless, animal sacrifices were made. And Hebrews says, why should God accept animal death in the place of the death of the sinner? It's the sinner who should die. And so I think what the author says here is exactly right. The law, as necessary as it was, as good as it was in God's scheme of atonement in history, nevertheless was useless. It could not itself accomplish what was supposed to be accomplished. It could not achieve perfection. It was incompetent to effect a justification of the sinner before God. And that's what the sinner needs. He needs to be justified before God. He needs to be forgiven. His sins need to be paid for. And the Levitical priesthood the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law did not do it. Well, John, tell me quickly then, how is it that the saints of the Old Covenant order who did make their sacrifices in the way, how is it they were saved then if the sacrifices didn't do it? They're not performed the In obeying that law, that law had efficacy only as it anticipated the coming of the adequate sacrifice to the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant order were wretched men. I and mean, how often do we read in the Old Testament of terrible, wicked priests? But even the best of them, even the best of them, was not unspotted before God. How could any one of those Levitical priests or any one of those animal sacrifices have been adequate to bring salvation? The author says it was useless, could not do this. And in this chapter, he focuses especially, we've been talking about the sacrificial system, and he will come to that. But in this chapter, the emphasis is upon the priesthood. Look at verses 11 to 17, particularly. Now, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what need would there be for another priest? Verse 12, for the priesthood has been changed. Verse 13 talks about attendance at the altar. Verse 14, Moses spoke nothing about priests from Judah. Melchizedek in verse 15, another order of priesthood. In verse 17, the oath of God, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So on and on and on, it's clear that the author is looking at the priesthood of the Old Covenant and saying it was weak, it was useless, it made nothing perfect. I want us now to contrast with respect to the Old Covenant priesthood the difference well, with respect to the priesthood, the difference between the Old Covenant priesthood and the New Covenant priesthood. I have four things in my outline of this chapter that talk about the imperfections of the Old Covenant priest, the Old Covenant order, the law, but as it focuses on the priesthood. Number one, we find about we find out in verses 23 and 24. You all read that and someone tell me, what is the first thing back in the Old Covenant order that was inadequate about those priests. 
verses 23 and 24. Jim? They were not permanent priests, were they? To be labeled the obvious, they died. Yeah, so what? That's what human beings do, they die, right? Well, if you stop and think about the stakes here, if you stop and think about what's really going on, that's your body. Because that priest is your life to God. That priest is your assurance that sin, which brings as its wage and penalty, death, has been taken care of before God for you. That's all I'm thinking about. But the man who is my life to God, with respect to the death which has come upon me from my sin, he died. And I didn't want him to die. One might get the impression that maybe that priest is not in an adequate position to intervene to God for you. Wouldn't you get that impression? There's nothing subtle about this. You don't need advanced training. Every little child can see it. If I don't want to die, if I want to be right before God, why do I go to a man who himself has the same problem and dies? And by the way, what if you got real close to one of these priests after all? He's the one who counsels you and intercedes for you and shows you how to come before God. And you have that kind of dependency and then he passes away. Who do you count on now? The next guy who comes up to the chain to the high priesthood or to that man's position? We don't feel good about that, do we? Even today in the New Covenant order, we don't like to lose our pastor. You know, maybe we're too dependent upon our pastors, but that makes us feel awkward. The author picks up on that and says in verse 23, They have been made priests, many in number. Why did you have to have many? Because by death they were hindered from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, has his priesthood unchangeable. Jesus will always be there to intercede. And you don't have to worry about the efficiency of his intercession, because he never dies. He has his priesthood unchangeable. He has a priesthood after the power of an endless life. And you might say, but Jesus did die. How can this be reconciled? The power of an endless life. It was impossible, as Peter preached it from the Psalms, it was impossible that death should hold him. Yes, he died after his human nature. His person did not die, though. Remember? Jesus is the God-man. He died upon the cross in his human nature. The God-man continued. And even in his human nature, death did not hold him. And now that he's risen from the dead, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Glorious difference. You don't have priest after priest after priest who die. You have one priest who forever lives. Second uh, disadvantage of the Old Testament priesthood found in verses 27 and 28. What else was wrong with those priests? They had offered their own king first. That's right. They were, doesn't the Bible say they were weak priests in verse 28? The law appoints men, high priests, having infirmity or having a weakness. Verse 27 explains that. Because they couldn't ever offer up sacrifice for your sins before they did what? They offered up sacrifices for their own. The law appoints weak, sinful priests. And that's why it's useless. 
In the end, the law can't do what has to be done. But Jesus did not have to offer any sacrifice for his sin before he could then go and offer sacrifice for ours. His sacrifice was for ours only. Thirdly, the old covenant order made nothing perfect. We've already said that. And what I want to stress here is that the priesthood then, the ministry of these priests, never really brought wholeness to the human being. Never brought spiritual <coughs> restoration to the human being. And fourthly, to hurry along here because I'm taking too much time, verse 28 says, the law appoints men. What's the alternative? Paul? Yeah, if we don't have men to be our priests, who then is going to be our priests? <laughs> <laughs> What's the other category besides men? Sure there is. What is well, look at verse 28. <coughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry. In contrast to what we now have, the old covenant only had sinful men. I, one of my points is they were sinners. But my last point is, they were just men. Over against what? God. God. In particular, though, verse 28 speaks of God using what title? The New Covenant appoints who to be a priest for us. Not just God versus man, but God the Son. You know who intercedes for you? The very Son of God Himself. So, you see, it's more intimate. It's more powerful than just the idea that you have deity interceding to be. You have the Son of God who goes to his own Father on your behalf. So the Old Covenant was, it made nothing perfect, it was weak and it was useless for the following four reasons. It had impermanent priests. Secondly, they were weak, sinful priests. Thirdly, they their ministry could not accomplish anything, could not bring spiritual restoration and wholeness. And fourthly, they were mere men. Now the most precious part of the whole lesson, the one nugget you've got to get and not forget out of tonight's study. What is it that characterizes the new covenant that is the old? Now I'm not talking about the difference between the priests, the perfection versus imperfection and all that, but what is it that we can do under the new covenant that could not be done under the old covenant? The one thing you need to have embedded in your mind as the key difference between the religious life of Old Testament people and the life we enjoy today. Say with that again. Okay, that's not the language of the author, but that is part of, I mean, that's what the answer entails, partly. Just a minute. Anyone else? We have many people answering all the questions. I want to get to ten. David, can you help us? Well, it's directly on the last because it's a bit of work to draw near to God. Yeah, that's the expression I'm looking for. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect in a bringing in thereupon of a better hope through which, this is the bottom line, friends, this is the cash value of it all, this is where the rubber hits the road, through which we draw near to God. Look at verse 25. Wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him. 
soon as he ever lived to make intercession for them. You know why I don't ever want to go back to the Old Covenant? Because the Old Covenant was characterized by distance between God and man. Distance. That doesn't mean that most people could not be reconciled to God. It does not mean they couldn't be saved if they anticipated becoming Savior. But it means that even their experience of salvation was less than what I experienced. Because they could not draw near to God. What is the symbolic manifestation of that fact? Hold on just a minute. Okay, what is the symbolic manifestation of the distance between God and man in the Old Covenant order? And God gives this beautiful picture to us to show that. Okay, how was the tabernacle set up? Say it. The curtain in between the Exactly. In fact, Amy has made it even um, less strenuous, a separation, and was really there. It wasn't just the curtain. The curtain was the final step. But you had what? A holy of holies, separated from what? The holy place, which itself was within the, pre the precincts of the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. No one could come to the precincts of the temple without going through the altar of sacrifice. Only the priests could do that. You know, people weren't allowed to the temple precincts. Only the priests could go there. And then, certain priests could go to the holy place. But only one priest could go to the holy of holies, and he could only go once a year. And where are all of God's people? Where are all the children of God? This is going at a distance. It's not just the tabernacle. Think of Mount Sinai. What did God do when he came down to visit his people on Mount Sinai? He put up a fence around the mountain. He said, don't you dare approach me. Do you know what that would be like? We don't. We, we don't appreciate the difference. The old covenant was characterized by God saying, keep your distance. If you even touch the mount, you will die. Any beast that wanders up to the edge of the mountain will die. <coughs> It was flame and fire and smoke and rumbling and, and uh, lightning as God descended on Mount Sinai. And the people were fearful. And Moses, who could come into the presence of God, when he comes down with the law to the people who have been kept at a distance, they want even more distance, don't they? What happens? The face of Moses is shining with the glory of God and they can't take it. They want to be shield. They put. They say Moses put a veil upon your face. The people were fearful of God, and they had. They had to be. They should have been. The glory of God was something they could not endure. It would have consumed them. It frightened them. So God puts up a veil, and the people ask for a veil. Don't you see that? That symbolizes the whole order of the Old Testament: separation from God. And yet the author of Hebrews says, "Through Him." We draw near. Through him we draw near. We don't stand back at the at the perimeter of the temple and watch our priests going through all those activities there, hopeful that it gets us right with God. We don't stand at the perimeter of Mount Sinai, fearful of the lightning and the glory of God that comes down. We come right into his presence. Perry's right in prayer. What did chapter four tell us? Verse 14, 
Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us draw near, don't you love these words, with boldness. No fearfulness is not Sinai now. No fearfulness of the temple or the Holy of Holies. Let us just walk right in like we own the shop, right into the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus went before us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. This verse says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you appreciate that? What it is that you don't ever stop to think about it. You just, in your car, you're driving along, you go right into the presence of God and pray. What gives you the right to do that? What gives you the confidence that you can just, like that, come before God and talk to Him? The author of Hebrews says, because you live in the new covenant. That's why. Because you've got a priesthood, and you've got a, a redemptive administration that is set up such that you don't have to keep your distance from God. You can run right up to Him. In fact, Jesus really makes it empty, right? So you can ride it, go, ride, right up to God and say, Abba. Right up here, very affectionate, and say, Father. Now, God was a father to the Jews. I don't want to say that there was some drastic theological difference you know, that, that kept him from being a father. But you know, the emphasis in the Old Testament is not upon him being Abba. Jesus is the one who takes Abba upon his lips. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. He knows him as Father, the only Trinitarian relationship. But he allows us to be adopted into the family of God. Don't you see, everything stresses intimacy, nearness, in the new covenant over against the old. And I want to tell you, that just makes me really happy. That makes my day when I read that. That makes me feel really good inside. It's very comforting to know I can walk right into the presence of God. Actually, I don't even have to walk. Mentally, I can be right in the presence of God, and Jesus made that possible. I don't have to stand back. I just want to write up and say, Abba. And he hears me. Now, I thought I saw a couple of hands. Am I keeping anyone from making a comment or asking a question? I, I had one question. Um, did the Old Testament saints then pray and have their uh, church heard by God? And how is that different from us when we pray? Okay, the difference, again, is not categorical. They could pray, and yes, God did hear their prayers. The difference was the spirit in which they prayed and the relationship to God on the basis of which they prayed. The spirit in which they prayed was one of fear and apprehension. It was not an Abba-type prayer, if I can put it that way. The saints of the Old Covenant knew the presence of God, but where was God present in the Old Covenant? When they thought of the presence of God, what would they think of? The Ark of the Covenant. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Is it in your hometown? No, it's up in Jerusalem. It's not just in Jerusalem, it's in that special place, Mount Zion, up on the hill, behind the tent, behind the veil, and so forth. Yes, God's present among his people, the Jews prided themselves in that. But how did the Jew think of the presence of God? God's up there in Jerusalem at the Ark of the Covenant. How do you think of the presence of God? You don't even you don't even begin to imagine God's presence that way. When you think of the presence of God, where does God live right now? Where's the temple now? Right here. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And our fellowship is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
We don't think about going away to Jerusalem to meet up with God. So, yes, they knew the presence of God and they knew prayer. What I'm saying is what they knew as God's presence, what they knew as prayer, is nothing like what we enjoy today. What's the difference? <coughs> Distance over against nearness. The New Testament is intimate. It says we are near to God. We draw near to Him through Christ. Now, let me emphasize quickly here that the reason the New Covenant is characterized by drawing near to God is because Christ, as the High Priest, <coughs> does the following five things. Now, before I give the five things, notice what Christ is called in verse 22. By so much also hath Jesus become the surety of a better covenant. What's a surety? A guarantee. Not just the guarantee. A guarantee could be down payment. When you become a surety, you're not just down payment, are you? You're not, no, it's more than collateral. That's right. When I become surety for your loan, that means if you fail, let the let the um, the person who made the loan come to me. I'll make good on it. Jesus is the surety of the new covenant. Jesus stands behind it. How can you be sure the debts will be paid? How can you be sure the transaction will be completed? Because Jesus stands behind it. And what does he do as high priest to become the surety of this covenant? One, the Bible tells us that he has a permanent priesthood. Verse 20. In a sense, this is going to repeat some of the things we've said because we've already seen the contrast. But notice the emphasis. He abides forever and has his priesthood unchangeable. Verses 26 and 27. For such a high priest became us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needs not daily life, those high priests will offer up sacrifices first for his own sins. He was morally perfect. Not only, was, not only is his priesthood permanent and unchangeable, he is morally perfect. Before I get to the other three, I want to stress that for just a minute. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I have many favorite verses. Verse 26 says, For such a high priest became us. Or, it could be translated, such a high priest was fitting. Such a high priest was appropriate. Why was Jesus, why was it appropriate that Jesus be a morally perfect high priest? What made that appropriate is only that kind of priest could intercede for sinners. Only that kind of priest could achieve perfection for sinners. So he had to be perfect but listen to this beautiful description of his moral perfection. For such a high priest became us, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sins. Holy, blameless, and undefiled. Now, we can summarize it by just calling that moral perfection, but there's some reason why the author decided to repeat himself so many times, right? Doesn't he want us to catch the nuance and have this driven home to our hearts? First, Jesus was holy. He was absolutely acceptable to God because there was nothing between him and God. His holiness matched the holy perfection of his Father. But secondly, he was blameless or harmless, some translations would put it. The emphasis in that word is he didn't hurt anybody. 
Not only did he not hurt God, not only did he not offend against God, he never offended against men either. He was holy, he was harmless. And undefiled. Not only his relationship to God, his relationship to men, but within himself, he was undefiled. That word is very important because Old Testament priests had to be undefiled, as did their sacrifices. But you know what was temporarily adequate for an Old Testament priest to be undefiled? I don't want to embarrass anybody. What that meant is he could not be a bastard. He could not have been born from uh, mixed lineage. He could not have his testicles crushed. He could not be physically mutilated. He could not have leprosy. And that kind of gets to me when people look at those Old Testament laws in isolation and they say, what's that all about? Hey, who cares about that? But you see, that was a very vivid picture of God saying, only an undefiled person can come before me. Jesus is undefiled. But his being undefiled goes way beyond not being mutilated in his body, not having, you know, bad parentage. Jesus is undefiled because he never did anything that would bring a stain of moral imperfection upon him. In fact, some of you might have in your more modern translations unstained. That's another way to translate the Hebrew word. Completely unstained. Now this expression, separate from sinners, could be interpreted to go with the previous three words, or others have interpreted it to go with the final expression, made higher than the heavens. It's interesting that it stands in between those two. Separate from sinners could be taken then in the moral sense that he stands apart from all those who offend against God's holy law. Or it could be taken in the physical sense that he's now been separated from the company of sinners because he's made higher than the heavens, having been exalted to the right hand of God. But you know, again, if you read the Bible contextually, like I try to encourage you to do, you know which of those interpretations has got to be the right one. Tell me. Make my day. How do you know which one of those interpretations, in context, must be preferred? Is Jesus separate morally from sinners, or is he physically now taken out from among the company of sinners? And that's the emphasis. But he's now distant from sinners and away from this horrible world of ours. Well, what have we just been stressing? Distance? No. The nearness of God. And so I, I would maintain, that though because of its place in the sentence, you might take it either way. In the paragraph, in the chapter as a whole, it must mean separated morally from sinners. The stress is not that he's now gone away from us. The stress is what? That we draw near to God through him. Intimacy, nearness. Okay. Let's go back to the reasons why Christ is functioning as a high priest effectively where the Old Covenant didn't. I said first he has a permanent priesthood. Secondly, that he himself is morally perfect. Verse 28 brings both those together. For the law appointed men high priests having infirmity, but the word of the oath which was after the law appoints a son perfected forevermore. The third thing is the Bible says he's exalted to minister in the heavens. At the end of verse 26, we read, and he has been made higher than the heavens. And you have to kind of hold off for a while, because it's only in chapter 8 that you're going to understand that. What the author is getting at here is, you know those priests, the Levitical ones? The only place they could minister was down here on earth. They could only minister 
in that shadow place called the tabernacle. Where does Jesus minister? Where did Jesus enter in with the blood of atonement to come before the presence of God? Did he go to the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem? The Bible says he entered into the real throne room of God with his own blood there to appear before God. The author is stressing that he ministers in the real tabernacle. He ministers before the actual presence of God, not just the earthly expression of it. Fourthly, his ministry is completed and is sufficient. Verse 27 at the end says, he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, but notice this, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is an offer sacrifice over and over and over again. When he offered sacrifice, that ended once and for all. And then fifthly, as we've seen previously, verse 28 says, He is not just a human priest, he is God's own son. For the law appointed men high priests having infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was after the law, appointed a son. Actually, the Greek says, appointed son. There is no article there to stress the, the quality of that relationship. Not just human, but the very Son of God that ministers for us. We should remember that the emphasis in the book of Hebrews has been already upon the sonship of Jesus. Let me read real quickly some passages to draw that to your attention. The very opening verses of Hebrews 1 and 2. God having a bold time spoken unto the fathers uh, in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners has at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son. Opening theme of the book, sonship, the superiority of the new covenant. Uh, verses 5, 8, and 13 of the same chapter stress. For unto which of the angels did he say at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. Superiority over angels. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Moses indeed was faithful in his house as a servant, but Christ as a son. Okay? Sonship versus the prophets. Sonship versus the angels. Sonship versus the servanthood of even Moses. And then chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience for the things he suffered, having been made perfect. He became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation, named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because he was a son, he went to his So, please pick up on that. And the author keeps coming back to that theme, the superiority of him because he's a son, we should see it. I'm going to end, uh, I feel terrible to do that, because I had some more stuff in my notes I wanted to go over. But let me tell you what I wanted us to study toward the end of our lesson tonight. To recapitulate the lesson, we wouldn't ever want to go back to the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant made nothing perfect. The law that was given there, the redemptive administration, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ritual, none of them allowed us to draw near unto God. Now having made that point and wanting that to stick with us, we should remember that the Old Covenant contained two things. Not only a redemptive administration, but also a declaration of the moral law of God. And about 
A lot of people say, no, you can't draw that distinction in the Old Covenant. And I wanted to prove to you tonight that you should. I have a whole series of verses, all of which are similar to Hosea 6, 6, that God says that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire righteousness and faithfulness, not this ritual that you go through. So that even in the Old Covenant, it was made clear that there was a difference between God's moral order and the sacrificial system that came in to fill in the gaps when we broke that moral order. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out is that that redemptive system was a foreshadow of something to come. Hebrews 10.1 said that the tabernacle was a shadow of the good things to come. And Colossians 2, verse you know, I'll give it to you so you can look up at home, 17 speaks of the offerings of the Old Covenant being a shadow, the substance of which is Christ. So two things in conclusion. The Old Covenant recognized the difference between the redemptive administration and the moral order of God. And the New Covenant makes it very clear that that redemptive administration was meant to be a shadow of something yet to come. Do you have questions? I had not meant to keep you this late, but I do want to give you a chance before we pray. Pat? What is the difference between the sufficiency and the efficiency of the atonement? Between the sufficiency and the efficiency of the atonement? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that distinction came up in the question and answer period on Sunday, and what was said is pretty much harmless in the way it was presented. I personally find it a little uh, superfluous and for that reason sometimes can be misleading when it's put that way. But here's what it's meant when people say that. That nothing more needed to be done by Jesus. No more blood needed to be shed. No greater perfection could be called for. And therefore what Jesus was would have been adequate to atone for the sins of all men. Had that been the intention of the atonement, it was adequate to do that. So that if you imagine the company of the saved to be a number represented by N, if God had changed his mind and wanted to save N plus 1, nothing more would have needed to be done. What Jesus did is all that ever would be called for to save any sin, or to save all sins. So that's the sufficiency of the atonement. The efficiency of the atonement is those who are saved by it. For although Jesus' death would be adequate to save your pagan, unbelieving neighbor, the death of Jesus is not efficient to save your pagan, unbelieving neighbor because your unbelieving neighbor is going to hell. In the end, the death of Christ did not atone for his sins. So that's why sometimes you people say, sufficient for all, efficient only for the elect. Or if you will, sufficient for all, applied only to the elect. The death of Christ was intended to save only those whom God had chosen. Seems like that means it was only sufficient for them then. Well, but on the other use of the word sufficient, you can see the point that what Jesus did could save all men if God wanted to do that through his death. Except that that implies some kind of universal indulgence. Oh, well, this won't make sense to others. It's kind of in modal logic. It doesn't imply that. All, it, all it's saying is enough was done to save any number of people. God determines the number, however, and it only saves those who he chooses. 
It doesn't imply any universalism as to God's intent. It implies a universalism as to its quality or value. Well, we agree with that, right? I don't know that either. You think Jesus would have had to get an agony ten more seconds to save more sinners? I mean, what else could it mean? If it saves one, it could save them all. It saves all whom God intends for it to save. And there's the sufficiency and the efficiency. Yeah, but it's, it, it is sufficient to save numerically more than God shows. Because there's it, no correlation. It between, that's right. That's why I said it's superfluous and sometimes it's misleading. I wouldn't put it that way. Yeah. But to explain the remark that was made, and it was often heard in our circles, that's what people are saying. The atonement did all that had to be done. But my point is, well, all that had to be done was the same for one sinner or all sinners. Exactly. And therefore, to say that it was sufficient, yeah. and that's what you mean. I just don't understand that term. I just don't like that term. I believe that, that, I'm guessing here, I think it's an educated guess, that probably arose as an effort to soften the blow of the doctrine of living no, atonement. Well, to tell people that Jesus' death was sufficient for everybody, even though it's sufficient only for the elect. But you see, I don't think it ever softens the blow. Because when someone who hears that understands what you're getting at, the offense is still there. You're saying Jesus only died for his people. He didn't die for everybody. And so that's right, he didn't die for everybody. If he died for everybody, everybody would be saved. Because his death is adequate as an exchange for the penalty of sin. I, I want to remind you, if you're tuning in here, that if you hold to the substitutionary atonement, you must say Jesus died only for the elect, unless you're a universalist. Because if his death was a substitute for sinners, then no sinner for whom he died can now be punished. That's why we believe that when Jesus died, it was not hypothetical for everybody. It was real for his people. He said he laid down his life for the sheep. And anyone can become his sheep. I mean, it's not like we're going out there saying, you know, God's going to keep you away from heaven. But the point is, those who will not become his sheep, he did not die for. <coughs> okay, other questions on the lesson or on this discussion? Definitely write, uh, write stuff in the book just like that. It does seem to me that a person who's listening is not really going to be satisfied with that sufficient, efficient distinction anyway. Because what he wants to say is Jesus died for everybody. And you can't say that. He died for all kinds of people, but his death was really intended for his people, for the sheep. <laughs> now, would anybody in this room think that God ever did it only in the afternoon? This is it. This is it. And I never thought of it in my whole life before. Which is several years, we might ask. My new life, either. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and told him that he kept the whole law, he was really just talking about the ceremonial law, period, wasn't he? He wasn't even intending to say that he kept the whole moral law, was he? Uh, no, I think he was intending to say he had kept the whole moral law. Not just the ceremonial law? Right. I think he was saying, I've done everything I'm supposed to. And Pat, that is probably an excellent illustration of how shallow the Jewish understanding of the moral law was. Yeah, that a man could be so audacious as to say that. And, and you don't get the impression he missed a beat either. He just said, you know, do this, do that, do that. And he said, oh, well, I kept the whole law from my youth. You know, they say, you self-righteous so-and-so. How much fun? You kept the whole law? And that's why Jesus said, oh, great. Well, then go sell 
I mean, because if you kept the whole law, then you obviously don't envy, you don't covet, so forth. And the Bible, Son of God, tell you that you'll be taken care of, go sell your goods. And the man left from Jesus. You know, Jesus knew he was a good man. The Bible says, you know, he uh, was sympathetic toward him in that sense. And yet, the man had many possessions. And so he hadn't kept the whole law. What Jesus was saying, Jesus was unveiling, was exposing his hypocrisy. He was showing that he had not kept the law at all. Since the distinction was so real about how imperfect the ceremonial law was, yeah. and that mm -hmm. if imperfection doesn't apply to the moral law, it has nothing to do with the moral law, because that's not redemptive anyway. I thought maybe well, the, moral law, the moral law intends to be redemptive, but it cannot, it can, it's only a shadow, and so it can't ever be the substance of redemption. Only Jesus could bring that in. Thank you. Okay. We will close in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you from the bottom of our hearts that we can just come to you right now without being fearful and standing off. We can just come right into your presence and talk to you. We confess that we don't have that right. There's nothing in us that gives that to us. We come to you not because you look upon us or our righteousness or accomplishments. We come to you with this boldness because there is one who goes before us, even your very Son, Jesus our Savior. <coughs> we thank you that we don't live under the Levitical priesthood of old. But we rather have the glorious priesthood after the order of Melchizedek that has brought us perfection and nearness to God has actually atoned for our sins and adopted us into your family and gives us the confidence that we can call you Abba, Father. Father, we do pray that you would love us and continue to support us and meet our needs. We pray also that you would help us to glorify you, to walk in your paths, that we might honor you and obey you. We pray that you would give us hearts that wish to demonstrate your character, that you would fill us with the fruit of your spirit, enable us to imitate the life of Jesus himself, to show forth his love to others. We pray that you would fill us with such gratitude that we want to demonstrate to the world that we are your children, that there is a difference between us, and that we have a heart to give to others that relationship as well, to show them how they too can call you Papa and have the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. We thank you that we have that assurance that you did not, as our Savior, die upon the cross for the mass of humanity, nameless, impersonal, and accomplishing nothing. But rather, when you died on the cross, you died with our names written upon your hands. That you died with your heart set upon us, that we should be changed people, loved from all eternity, and to be loved for eternity future. We thank you for all these precious promises. We thank you for the better hope that we enjoy today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.